Father, tonight we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that our plea is the blood of Jesus. We know that we have been redeemed. We've been set free. We know that the blood of Jesus speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. It speaks forgiveness, justification, sanctification, covenant, partnership. Lord, we thank You tonight that your word is true, forever true. And I pray you give us revelation tonight from your word. You tell us what we need to know, that we'll hear you. So, Father, we rejoice, we honor you, we thank you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody happy? Yeah? Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. So we ought to be happy. But, you know, we live in a crazy world, don't we? I mean, it's crazy out there. There are, you know, the war in, in Israel. Well, it's in Gaza. War in other parts of the world. I mean, people trying to take over other people's lands. Here in our own country, we've got all kinds of turmoil and strife. And, uh, you know, boys think they're girls and girls think they're boys. And, and uh, uh people marching against this and against that and I don't know it's just it's just a crazy crazy world in fact you know you have to be so careful uh, just about the pronouns that you use you know you know I mean that's just craziness to me I, I you know I'm glad I'm my age because people kind of let you off the hook when you don't when you're my age and you can <laughs> use the wrong pronoun or whatever because uh, you know they realize that when you get to be my age you're not going to change so it doesn't really matter uh, but it's just crazy. I mean, just just violence is out there. People, uh, you know, I, I read an article, I read a headline today of, of a lady who got sworn in as the uh, head of the school board. And instead of a Bible, they brought out pornographic material for her to put her hand on. And so she swore on, on those uh, books that they were going to try to put in the library of their school. I mean, that's craziness. Crazy things that, that people are doing. And, and uh do what? It does. And we need a revival in our land. But let me just say something about God. He's not worried about it. He's not walking in heaven back and forth thinking, oh, dear Lord Jesus, what are we going to do now? I mean, my goodness, did you see that? What are we going to do? You know, he's not worried about it. And he does not want us to worry about it. He talked about it in the scripture. He talked about, he said, let not your heart be troubled. His heart isn't troubled. God loves people. God loved the lady who was taking that swearing-in thing. He loves her. He wants her to get to spend eternity in heaven with Him. And hopefully she will. Hopefully somebody will reach her with the gospel somewhere along the way. But God loves her and He's not worried about it. And we don't need to be worried about it. We don't need to be worried. I mean... It's easy in this room, if I said, now, y'all worried about any of that stuff? You would say, no, because in this room, we're, we're tough and strong. But the question is, what about when you're by yourself and, and, and no one is around you or, or that thing? The Bible teaches us not to worry. And we, we read this last week. The scripture says in Philippians chapter 4, 6, tells us to take no anxious thought. We don't need to be worried. Don't be worried. Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. That's what that verse said. Be anxious for nothing. Romans 8.15 says this, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, 
but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've not received the bondage again to fear. Worry is a form of fear. Do we understand that? If we're worried, we're afraid. It's a form of fear. Sometimes we think that it's, it's, it's godly and Christian for us to worry. You know, worry about the grandkids and worry about this and worry about that and, and worry about if they're going to get here in time for Christmas lunch or all the things. And we think that's a godly thing. No, it's not a godly thing. Wouldn't it be something if, if they called you and said they said, they said, they said, they said, listen, we're coming and we want you to worry for us. <laughs> well, they want you to pray for them and they want you to pray believing God, not, not to be worried. Okay, so the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1, 7, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We're not to be people who are to allow fear to dominate, dominate us. We need to be bold and we need to remain bold. We need to stand in this hour. Sadly, Christians get so depressed about so many things that they have no control over. No control over. You know, we need to focus on things we can have control over. The fear of bad things is not from God. The fear of bad things. Fear doesn't come from God. It's an evil, destructive force that actually makes you vulnerable and susceptible to what you're afraid of. That's a pretty powerful statement. It is of utmost importance that we resist fear and give it no place in our lives. Job 3.25 says, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Fear is a magnet for what you fear. We need to be believing what God has told us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Aren't you glad that Jesus became a man? He took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear brings bondage. Every fear you can think of is connected to death, right? I know I've said this before. No one's really afraid of flying. They're afraid of dying in a plane crash. No one's really afraid of spiders. They're afraid of getting bit by a spider and dying from the bite. Okay, fear always leads to death. All right, we must understand that Jesus has delivered us from all the power of the darkness and the fear of death. We're not going to be. We are delivered right now. That's why I can say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We don't need to fear. We've already been delivered. We've got to receive what He's done. We can't allow fear to creep into our lives because it tries to all the time. Now, this is kind of what spiritual warfare is all about spiritual warfare is fighting deception fighting lies that come from the devil things that disagree with what god has said true spiritual warfare is exactly that defying the lie standing for the truth that comes from god's word the devil will do everything he can and is already doing it to attack what you believe 
He wants you to not believe the Bible. He wants you to believe the circumstance. He wants you to believe how you feel, what you can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell more than you believe what God said in His Word. The whole attack on you is to get you to let go of your belief in the Word of God. He works all the time trying to get you to say, well, I know the Bible says that, but if the Bible really meant that, this wouldn't have happened or that wouldn't have happened. The devil is about wrestling away your faith, the thing that you believe. That's why the scripture calls it a fight of faith, because the devil wants to steal that. If he can get you to let go of the promise of God, he wins. He wins every time when that happens. It's not a fight of emotion. It'd be wonderful if we could just have a slap fight with the devil, wouldn't it? And just slap him. The only way you can slap him is by believing what God said. Standing on that all your life. It's a fight about your faith. That means I've got to learn how to think right. I've got to learn how to talk right. Because what I think and what I say is connected to what I believe. The things that I speak about in my private moments, the things that I think about, that is what I really believe. If I think the boogeyman is going to get me, that's what I believe. And that's what's going to, and somehow somebody that's like a boogeyman is going to come in there. We got to learn how to do that. It's a fight of faith. The devil wants to separate you from believing what God has said. That's the bottom line. And it comes through thoughts mostly. We think it, we say it. Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. He said, a good, a, a good heart with a good treasure will speak good things and produce good things. An evil heart out of, out of evil treasure will speak evil things and produce evil things. doesn't mean it's going to be evil to somebody else. It means I'm speaking it for myself. I, I'm creating it for myself. I mean, the, the scripture says in Psalm 34, 4, I love this verse. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. If you deal with fear, you ought to say that every single day, multiple times a day. He delivered me. Listen, I think I said this last week. I'm dreaming of a fear-free Christmas this year. Worry-free fear-free. I mean, I expect us to have victory as we fight what the Bible calls the good fight of faith. I taught this a long time for several weeks. I don't know if it was this year, last year, year before. It's called a good fight of faith. But it's good because we win. I don't think I can ever call a fight I lost a good one. I know there are people out there when the Cowboys lose, they go, well, it was a good game. Not if they lost, it wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even get that one. I mean, if they lost, it was a bad game. You know, I mean, I want them to win by 50 points every game. That's what I'm after. But we need to understand that it's, it's a good fight of faith. It's supposed to be good. We're, I want us to finish our course. No matter what the devil threatens us with, no matter what the circumstances say, even if, even if the thing didn't come to pass in my life. I want to die breathing my last breath, believing God for what He said. And I want to be able to stand in His presence and Him say, Son, I appreciate you. Stay with me, believing. And now you're here with me. I want to believe God. I want to stay with Him. Here's what the Amplified Bible says. This is Amplified uh, 
Philippians 1.28. I really like this verse. And do not for a moment be frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents and adversaries. For such constancy and fearlessness will be a clear sign, proof and seal to them of their impending destruction, but a sure token and evidence of your deliverance and salvation and that from God. The scripture says, don't be intimidated for a moment. Don't be afraid for a minute. Stand. And when you do that, that's a sign, a proof to the enemy that they're being destroyed and not you. That's good, huh? Praise God. Let's talk about Christmas a little bit tonight. I'm going to look at Luke chapter chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. And you've heard these verses many, many times in your life. Many times. I think I lost my place there. Here we go. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. For it was so that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth, forth <coughs> excuse me, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Everybody knows those verses, right? We've heard them many, many times. Hopefully you've heard them every year. We've been talking about Christmas. We've been talking about the, the different people of Christmas. We talked about Simeon and Anna. We talked about Joseph and Mary. Last time we talked about the shepherds and the wise men. And uh, you found out that the angels didn't sing. And, uh, you know, that was probably an eye-opener for a lot of us that the angels didn't sing. Tonight I'm going to talk about the Christ of Christmas. So, understanding that Jesus was probably not born on December the 25th in the year zero. Is everybody, we got that figured out probably. Most historians believe that Jesus was probably born in September of 6 or 7 B.C. So, let me say a little bit. Pope Julius I authorized December 25th to be celebrated as the birthday of Jesus in 353 A.D. He's a little late coming to the scene to decide that was Jesus' birthday, but I'm glad we celebrate it. Jewish people and others have always considered the day of conception as the beginning of life. And so a person's age was considered from the day of their conception, which I think is a good thing. Jesus was born, if he was born in September, the day of his conception would have been December. And since most believe he was born on Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, that would have been at the end of of the month of September, and that would mean his conception would have been in late December, possibly December the 25th. So maybe we're closer than we think we are as far as the day. So Christmas, what, what, what is that about? Is it, we talked last week about Santa and different things. What, what's it, is it, is Christmas about the baby? Is that what we're celebrating? The purpose of Christmas is, is that God became a man that God put on human flesh and dwelt among us. That's the purpose of Christmas. That's why it's so important. The reason that God became a man is so that he could die for
for the sins of the world. So he could come and be one of us, die as one of us, be raised as one of us, become the firstborn from the dead or the first one to ever, ever, ever come out of hell. That's what he came to do. That's why he came. The purpose of Christmas is so you and I can come into covenant with God, into his blessing while we're in this world, and then we get to go to heaven when we die. That's what it's about. The purpose of Christmas is the revelation of the word of God. All right, so every year we sing this. We we talk about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That's in the Bible. That's a verse. But let me tell you what that verse actually says in the Greek. It says, on earth, peace among men with whom God is well pleased. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to have peace on earth. In fact, the only real way to experience peace is in, is in, a, in the revelation of Jesus as Lord. That's the only peace. We want peace in the Middle East. Well, if you read the Bible carefully, you're going to find that it probably is not going to happen. Because there are too many people that are going to be in war forever because that's what they want to be. Is just they're people of, 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 of war. We also say joy to the world. Joy can only come in the heart of a person who's received the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus. Okay, Christmas is not the key to joy. The key to joy is knowing that the babe of Bethlehem became the man of Calvary. That's how we have real joy. It's important because the baby in the manger is the Lord. He became the man of the cross, and it was there that he took a curse for us, and we received his blessing. So let's look at this little baby for a few minutes. The story, let me, let's, let's, let's look, it says this in verse 2, I'll read it again, verse 4. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. The Bible says that Joseph went up, and that's literal because of the elevation of Bethlehem is much higher than the city of Nazareth, so they went up to get there. The journey that Joseph and Mary set out on, it was a long, difficult journey for anyone, much less a woman who was about to give birth to a baby. By the way, they didn't have a Cadillac to go in. I guess the best they could have had was a Camelac. I'm not sure. (laughs) Could have been a donkey. They could have walked the whole way, but they went there. She's ready to give birth. Nazareth. To Bethlehem is 70 to 90 miles, depending on how you go. For a person in good shape, traveling average of 20 miles a day, the trip would normally take four days to get there, however they did it. But for a very pregnant woman, it would take seven to ten days because, as you know, she would need multiple breaks. She'd have to go to the restroom. She'd have to rest. They'd have to set up and break down camp numerous times. I mean, there's nothing easy about this trip that they took to Bethlehem. Yet, it was ordained by God. It tells, it tells me this. Sometimes we judge whether something is the will of God by whether or not it's easy. It'd be great if everything that's the will of God was easy, wouldn't it? I mean, it tells us that God will not only inconvenience people and change their plans to fulfill His plan, But it tells me that he will inconvenience me and change my plans in order to get me to where I need to be to fulfill the destiny he's called me to. And that's true for you as well. 
God is no respecter of persons. He'll, he'll, he'll inconvenience us to get us where we're supposed to be. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean it's not God. Many times in Christian circles, they like, well, this, it was so difficult to do that. We knew that it couldn't be God. Well, it could be. It could be God. You, you just do what he said. The cross, the scourging of Jesus, they were horrific, but they were still a part of God's plan to redeem mankind through Jesus. As we serve God, there are going to be hard things we're going to have to do to get to, to where we need to be. Amen. That's, that's a good part of this. No, that's, I'm just saying. If we're willing and obedient, God will supernaturally empower us to do whatever we need to do to fulfill His purpose in life. His empowerment is in His command. Joseph and Mary were committed to doing what God told them to do. They are willing to obey God, and God got them where they needed to be, to the little town of Bethlehem. Interesting, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. In John's Gospel, Jesus stated repeatedly in different ways, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Thus, Jesus, the living bread, came from heaven, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. It was the best bread to ever come out of there. God, with His pinpoint precision, fulfilled the prophecy that Micah spoke about where Jesus would be born. And spiritual nourishment for the whole world came through Bethlehem, through Jesus Christ. In Bethlehem, just by, as a point of, of reference, there were no barns. Not a single one. There were caves. They had lots of caves around Bethlehem. Jesus was not born in a barn. He was born in a cave. Just, just throwing that out for you. I hate to ruin your Christmas, but you can tell people and you can show pictures of a barn all you want to. It won't offend me. But that isn't what really happened in real life. There were no barns. All right? So Joseph obeyed the Roman decree. He arrived in Bethlehem, and it says to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. We talked about that when we talked with them. Being great with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. When the Bible says she was great with child, that's what it means. She was extremely pregnant or toward the end of her pregnancy, as pregnant as she was going to be because she was soon to be delivered. Then it happened. The miracle occurred. People are still celebrating this miracle over 2,000 years later. The Bible says, and she, brought, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, it's interesting. It says firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The word firstborn means firstborn, the first of other children. So we understand their religious faith some that believe that Mary only had the one child and it was Jesus. However, Matthew may indicate, shows us that it wasn't just Jesus. He, had, he was the firstborn. He had other, other siblings. His brother's names were Joseph, James, Jude, Simeon, and along with at least two sisters because it says sisters. So there's at least six other kids there. It's interesting to me that one of his, one of his brothers, James, wrote the book of James. The Apostle James didn't write that book. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the book. His other brother, Jude, wrote the book of Jude. And so his brothers eventually became disciples of Jesus and of the church. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
It's interesting to me, this, this Greek word here, it describes bandages or strips of material used for wrapping the little legs of newborn lambs, which would have been available in the cave where Jesus was born. All right. There were animals all around that night in those caves. I mean, where he was born, there were, and there were probably lambs among them. Thus, the strips of cloth that they used to wrap the legs of baby lambs were used to wrap up baby Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so they wrapped him up in those in those those uh, uh, bandages. So his first appearance on earth, his very first coming there, foreshadowed his purpose for coming. Remember what John the Baptist called Jesus to be? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I mean, this, this signature title of Jesus makes the term swaddling clothes very significant, and that's why it was a clear sign to the shepherds. The Bible says that Mary laid Jesus in a manger. I grew up thinking the manger was the barn, but it wasn't. The manger wasn't the barn at all because there was no barn, but the manger was an animal's feeding trough. So Mary wraps this baby in these strips of cloth that were meant for lambs, lays him in a feeding trough because they didn't have a crib, of course, and that's where she laid him. Tradition says that Mary and Joseph ended up in the cave with the animals because they were too poor for a room. That isn't what the Bible said. The Bible didn't say that they were, they were, they were poor and they couldn't get a room. The Bible says there was no room for them in the inn. Everything was booked. I mean, th- there was so many travelers going through. They were crowding every city because of the census. By the time they pulled into town, the rooms were already taken, and the cave was all that was available. So they're in a cave. Jesus is in a trough. I mean, here they are. All these caves were out there, but there's one particular cave. There's one that we understand that Jesus was born in. It was a refuge for shepherds and their flock. That means the night Jesus was born, it was anything but silent. Because there's, there were cows, there were sheep, there were shepherds, there were other travelers, there were lots of people, lots of things going on. It probably wasn't silent at all. It was holy because the Lamb of God came to, into the world. But Jesus came not to a silent night, but to a very busy night. It was a noisy night. I mean, it was all there. This cave that Jesus was born in is located today just below the present-day church of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. I mean, it's, it can be reached. You have to descend a flight of stairs from the cathedral's main level. And today, there's a star on the ground that marks the place that where Jesus was born. And it's been, it's been documented by Christian writers from as early as, as the first century. So we understand that's where Jesus was born. Here's a fun verse of Scripture that we want to talk about tonight. In 1 Timothy 3.16, this is what Paul wrote about the birth of Jesus. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godlessness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on into the war in the world, received up into glory. It says that God was manifested. The word manifest here, the Greek word is phanerau, and it it means to appear or become visible. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God was made visible in the flesh for the very first time. Humans had never laid eyes on God, and now he's in the flesh, and man can view him. But that's not all who got to see him. 
When he was born, that wasn't his beginning. It was the first time he became visible as God clothed in human flesh. And at that time, he had flesh, bone, and blood, completely human and completely God at the same time. All right? The moment he was born, the invisible God became physically visible, seen by angels. The angels were excited that night. The word seen... It, it, it literally means, it's talking about, about it means to, to, to see, to behold, to perceive, to delightfully view. It pictures a scrutinizing look to, to and with the intent to examine or fully view or to experience. Here he was seen by angels. In light of what happened that night, the Bible says, And suddenly there was with the angel, talking to the shepherds, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Again, we talked about this a little bit last last week. These are not little cupids, little naked butt cupids flying around. That isn't what they were. These angels came, and they were the armies of heaven that came to the earth to see God in that form for the very first time. Because they had been saying, according to the psalmist, what is man that you're mindful of him? Why is man so important to you? But God became a man. And these angels came that night to salute their commanding officer. Born in a manger. I mean, it had to be exhilarating to see the king of the universe come to be a man getting ready to answer their question, what is man that you're mindful of him? Here he is, the babe in the manger. I mean, that's what that was all about. Just think about it. All those, all those angels dressed in their armor regalia come to salute the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whew, that excites me to think about that night. It wasn't just sweet little angels. These were army angels. Soldier angels that came. Now, let me read you another scripture. Most time you don't apply this scripture to, to Christmas. Most time it's applied to Easter. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. I mean, this is the story of Christmas. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him, it says a name in the King James Bible, it literally says given him the name. God gave him his very name, given him the name. Whew, man, I've lost my place. Which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a Christmas passage, I think. It's talking about God becoming a man. God putting on flesh. It describes accuracy, this incarnation of God manifesting himself in the flesh. Although, I mean, like I say, most people use that for Easter. Listen to what it says. It says, in verse 6, Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It tells us that Jesus existed before he came to earth. We know that because he eternally existed in the form of God. He is God. 
He was God, always was, always will be. Jesus is God. All right. The, the word form, the Greek word is morphe, which, which describes an outward form. In his pre-existence, he was not just a component of God, he was God. And that's hard for our minds to wrap around sometimes. But Jesus is the eternal God, God the Son. As that, he possessed all the attributes of the Godhead, all of his power, his glory, and his splendor. In fact, he had so much power, glory, and splendor that, that angels and men couldn't look into his face because of all the glory, because of all he was. I mean, no human being could have endured that. But to overcome it, he came to fellowship with us. He chose to change his form, as we see in this passage, and God the Son was manifest as a man, became one of us. Think about that for just a minute. One of us is on the throne of heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He had to become a man. The Bible says, being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made the likeness of men. He made himself of no re no reputation. That, that this this word kanao, which means made himself, it means to make empty, make, to make empty, to vacate, to evacuate, or to shed. When Jesus made himself of no reputation, he emptied himself, vacated himself, shed all those godly attributes that prevented man from appearing in his presence. He shed all that. He became a man. He divested himself of all of his heavenly glory, his splendor, his power, and took on a different form to come and walk among us. He took upon him the form of a servant. Took upon him, as the, the Greek word is, is, is katalambano, which means to seize, to grab hold of, to take sure of oneself. Almighty God came and seized, lay, laid hold of human flesh. He grabbed it and reclothed himself, so to speak, as a man. The Bible says he wasn't just any man. He redressed himself as a servant. Jesus came as a servant, one who does the bidding of his owner, one whose principal task is to fulfill the desires of his master. Jesus came to do the will of God. I mean, this servant's existence was service to the master any way that the master asked. That means when Jesus came to earth, he came for a specific assignment. He came to fulfill the will of the Father, doing whatever the Father asked him to do, even to the point of going to the cross and dying for our sins. But there's more than that. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Was made. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that describes what happened in the womb of Mary. He was made. However, that miracle took place because of, of the Lord overshadowing her. He was fashioned as a man. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. The word fashion here is the Greek word schema, and it truly expresses the essence of the whole story. This word schema is interesting. It was used to describe a story of a king who wanted to live and walk among his people, but he couldn't because everyone would recognize him and he'd be mobbed. He would look out the window day after day. This is how the, the Greek story goes. And he wanted to, to, to go out and he longed to be with the people of the kingdom. He wanted to be with them. And so he was moved with compassion. He wanted to be around them. What were they like? What did they want? What were their needs? And so one day he decided, I'm going to shed my garments I'm going to dress myself like one of them, like a commoner, and no one will recognize me. 
So he was able to go out and, and walk the streets. He was able to be with people. No one recognized him because he looked like everybody else. Finally, he was able to live and move among his own people. When the Bible says that Jesus was found in fashion as a man, it describes God the Father as the king in that story. And he loved his creation so much he longed to be with us, but he couldn't because his attributes were too powerful for us to look at. To overcome it, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He reached into the material world, grabbed hold of flesh, reclothed himself in the form of Jesus. Thus the King of kings and the Lord of lords slipped into the human race unnoticed. The Bible says this, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He became one of us. He became what we needed. He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It means He became lowly. He became obedient. The word, the word obedient, the Greek word is hupokau. Is Kao, which, which is a compound of two words, hupo, which means to be under, and kao, which means to hear. We get the word acoustics from a kao. So when they're combined, they picture someone who's under someone else's authority listening to what the superior is saying. That's what Jesus was. He was under the authority of the Father. He listened to him, and he said, I only say what he says. I only do what he tells me to do. And they, and they hung him on the cross. He was impaled on the cross. Okay, now. Now we have Christmas based on all that. Mm-hmm. Philippians 2.9, he went on to say, Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Because Jesus stooped so low in obedience to the Father, the Father highly exalted him. The Greek word, uh, the, phrase, the phrase here, highly exalted, is the Greek word, uh, Hooper up so uh, and it's it's used only time it's used in the New Testament, and it means to make exceedingly high, to elevate beyond, to the highest place, or to elevate exceedingly. God elevated Jesus to the highest place by giving him the name, which is above every name. He's elevated there. The word name means name, fame, or reputation. As a result of his obedience, he was granted a name, fame, and reputation unlike anyone else. His name is above every name. It's over. It's beyond. It's something that that can never be attained to. And here's what I like. And this is what needs to happen this Christmas and every Christmas. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see this word every, and the Greek word is pan, you know what that means? All, every, every single one. Every single one. Do you know? Every single knee will bow. Every knee. Every knee. Even those Muslims who slaughter the Jews, they will bow. They will bow to the name of Jesus. Every knee, every tongue. No one is excluded. They will bow. They will bend the knee. They will, I like that. They, and every tongue will confess. The word confess is, is the Greek word we've already talked about, homo logeo, which means they will say out loud and confess in agreement that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios, which means supreme master. One day everyone will. So here we have the story of Christmas. We've talked about it for several weeks. Tonight we're talking about him being born in Bethlehem. 
it's not talking about a baby, a poor baby. They were humble conditions, but it didn't say he was poor. It's the magnificent good news that God took on human flesh and became one of us in the form of Jesus. Even his name, Jesus. In the, we say Jesus in English. It actually in the Hebrew is Joshua. It was the most common boy's name of the day. He came in and became one of us. He became every man. He wasn't common. And this Jesus had a name above every name. He was born to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Through the stripes of His scourging, we find healing. Through His blood, we have forgiveness of our sin. And because He was obedient to death, He's been exalted to the highest place. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, tonight we thank You for the Christ of Christmas. We thank You tonight, Father, that God became a man, became one of us. We thank You tonight, Lord, that You didn't just leave us to our own, but that You came. You lived a perfect, sinless life And you gave your life away that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, tonight we thank you for Christmas. That it's a time to celebrate you becoming a man. Lord, we thank you. We honor you tonight. We worship you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you, Father, you sent him. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us. We thank you tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.